Hey, thanks so much for listening to Sandals Church. Our vision as a church is to be real with ourselves, God, and others. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey guys, I want to let you into our home uh, just a minute. You know, we at our house, we love music. Uh, our boys, we love to sing. Uh, we love to dance. The boys are not good at singing or dancing in the family, but we try. You know, we're fans of people who can sing and dance. And uh, my son came home from school back in middle school one time, and he said, Dad, I want to try out for the musical my, that my school is doing, Beauty and the Beast. Can I try out for a part? I was like, yeah, man, be my guest. Go for it. And uh, so he tries out, comes home, gets the Maurice, you know, the part of the dad. And he's so pumped about it. My wife has the script, you know, she's reading through it. And she goes in the other room and calls me in the other room and says, man, I'm looking through the script. And Maurice is the only character in the play who has no song to sing. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, he's gonna be disappointed. You know, let's sit him down. So we sat him down on the couch, said, hey buddy, man, I'm so proud of you, you know, trying out, you got the part of Maurice. It's gonna be awesome. You get dressed like an old man. And, uh, but Maurice has no song to sing, like no solo in, in the play. And he goes, yeah, I know. And then I was kind of like, well, and then you start thinking, man, is my kid stupid, you know, or whatever. And like, you know, like why, you know, why did you pick Maurice? And he said, dad, when my class got to the sign-up sheet, you know, I looked and, and all the big characters had like tons of names next to it. All the important characters were taken, but Maurice had nobody's name next to it. And he said to me, and this is why I love my boys. He said, dad, I just wanted to be in the story. You know, a small part in a great story is still a great honor. You know, and I think until we see uh, the greatness of God's story, we don't begin to see the greatness of our giving and our generosity. The people I know that are some of the most generous people, first of all, you wouldn't know them because they know the, the, the privilege of being hidden, but being a part of the story of what God's doing. And I think we all want to be a part of a great story. You know, when uh, Peter Jackson went to do Lord of the Rings in New Zealand, nobody had ever heard of Peter Jackson, but they knew Lord of the Rings. They knew the story. And so in Wellington, New Zealand, like this small little town, 20,000 people showed up just to say, I want to be an extra. Like you can, I'll ride a horse. You can shoot me with an arrow, whatever you want to do. Like, I just want to be in this story. And 20,000, like I've been to New Zealand and that's everybody in New Zealand, right? Because they say, I want to be in that story even if it's small. And I think sometimes we, we think our part is small because we don't see the future where the story's going. Um, any of you guys remember the Terminator movies, right? Another great literature classic, you know, Terminator. Uh, the premise of those movies is really interesting. It's if I could go back in time and take out my enemy before they're born or while they're small, I can win the war. And I started thinking about that. That's actually a really deep idea that all our enemy has to do is stop you before you see the significance of your life in the story, and he wins. All I have to do is put out the match that lights the fire, that lights the world, and I win. You know, what if God erased you out of the story? What, what would be lost? You know, we're gonna look at someone who is a footnote, just, just a footnote, in a story about, well, I think, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah. 
You've probably heard of Elijah. I think that's my opinion that he was the greatest. But man, Jesus talks about him. James talks about him. God likes him so much. He gives him a VIP pass to heaven, takes him up in a whirlwind. Dude doesn't even die. Elijah was awesome. Elijah could part water. He raised people from the dead. Elijah called down fire on people like four times and fire comes, you know. And Elijah one time prayed that it would not rain and it didn't rain for three years. Like his enemies hated him. He, but during that time, there was a problem. He had to stay alive. He had to stay alive during a famine. And God uses someone to take care of him that is the most unexpected character in the story. It's a woman. She's poor. She doesn't have, she's not connected, doesn't have resources, doesn't have power, doesn't have influence. She's not even a believer in his God, the God of Israel. But God is going to ask this woman to give. And if she will be generous and give, it's going to change the story. This story we're looking at is in 1 Kings chapter 17. And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, and said, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. So this is not God's people, God's area, Gentile area. He's going to and dwell there because he'll be safe there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And when he arose, he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, there was a widow who was gathering sticks, uh, not wood, sticks. And she called, he called out to her and said, will you bring me a little water in a, in a vessel that I may drink? And as she was going to bring it, he called her again and said, will you bring me a morsel of bread in your hand? One of the things I start to notice about this story is just the smallness in all the images. She's gathering sticks, bring me a morsel. And she said, as the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a, a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks. That's it. To go and prepare it for myself and my son that we, we may eat it and die. These are her last two meals. And, and I think we see in this story, just smallness has overtaken her life. You know, she has so little. And I think sometimes in our generosity, our problems begin to like cave in on us. Smallness begins to choke out like our hope, our faith, and especially the idea of being generous toward other people. We, we become risk averse and we kind of cave in on ourselves. Uh, my wife's little sister, I call her my little sister because I've known her since she was 12. Man, before she became a Christian, she was a risk taker, like not in a good way. You know, she partied it up like rock star, uh, you know, got a couple of accidents, um, just, you know, did all the things like that a risky person would do before Christ. And we were just praying she'd stay alive, you know. But when after she became a Christian, let me tell you something, she was a risk taker for God. And actually, right after she became a Christian, the first risk she took was her little student campus mission group was taking a trip to China. And she said, yes. She's like, sure, I'll go on the trip to China. She's a risk taker. Now, what's, she asked us about it because missions and students, that's kind of our ministry. And but what's funny is I didn't know this till like a couple years ago. She's like, Claude, the only reason I said yes to that dumb trip in China is the deadline was Friday. And she's like, I knew there was no way I was going to make the financial deadline on Friday. <laughs> you know, you ever like commit to something because you're like, there's no way this is going to happen. You're like, God, if I win this Powerball, right, I'll give you 90% because it's not going to happen. You know, kids, you make straight A's. I'll buy you a Tesla because it's never going to happen. You know, 
So there, but there's one person that, that my sister didn't factor in to the equation. And I know you think it's God, but it's not God, it's grandma, all right? Grandma. <laughs> there's, other than the Holy Trinity, all right, there's nothing more powerful on planet Earth than grandma with a disposable income who loves Jesus, right? <laughs> and so my mom, grandma, wrote a check to Melissa, and it just happened to be the exact amount she needed for that Friday. And God provided her, and guess what? Her faith grew. And she's been taking risks for God ever since. She's right now in one of the hardest countries as a, as a worker to be in. Uh, she's learned two languages. I mean, she's overcome all kinds of hurdles since then. But it's so funny that the first faith hurdle for her was so small. But her faith grew and grew and grew. And I want you to, if you're writing notes, I want you to know this. We often see the size of our problems, not the size of our God. We get overwhelmed easily by the size of our problems and we forget, man, the size of God and his resources. You know, generosity uh, isn't so much about the resources around us. It's about remembering the resources above us. And, you know, what for you, what's your heart been overwhelmed with? What has smallness sort of closed in and choked out in you in the area of giving? You know, this reminds me of flash forward to the New Testament where Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know, and, and Andrew brings this boy to Jesus who has a little lunch, you know, with him. And this is what it says, John chapter six. Here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But look what Andrew says. But what are they for so many? Right, look at this crowd. I mean, this is, this is absurd, right? Like what are these two fish for so, so many? And I think Jesus is just going, you know what? You're doing earthly math. You know, we're in a heavenly story, but you're, and you're doing earthly math, right? And when we work, we, we just get our power. But listen, when we give and when we pray, we start to tap in to God's power. And what I think is interesting is Jesus has no problem asking this boy to give his two fish. He allows him to give. It's an honor to give. And God is about to ask this widow to give. Elijah says to her, don't fear, right? The smallness and all this is overtaking your life. Don't fear. Go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake <laughs> and bring it to me. Make me a cupcake, all right? This whole story comes down to a cupcake. <laughs> and afterward, then afterward, go make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, it comes with a promise, the God of Israel, that the jar of flour that you're using shall not be spent and the jug of oil that you're using will not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Fear not. You know, and you think, okay, this can't be about Elijah's nourishment. You know, we're talking about a cupcake or this family's nourishment. This is about testing her faith. And it's really absurd that God would ask anything of any of us. You know, God needs a temple. Boom, temple, right? God needs to feed 5,000. Boom, Chick-fil-A, 5,000. You know, God needs, you know, a manger for baby Jesus. Boom, Burj Dubai for baby Jesus, right? God can do that. It's not about these resources. It's, he's saying, you know what, even though she's in the middle of crisis, generosity is still the way out of it because you need faith more than you need that food. And so he challenges her to give and test him in the area of giving. We've talked about this before. First Corinthians 16 says this, on the first day of every week, how are we to give to God? We're to give first because when we give at the first of the month or the first of the week, it tests God to provide for us and we need the faith that comes afterward. 
give on the first of the week. Each of you put something aside, store it up as he may prosper so that there be no collecting when I come. When we tithe, giving first says, God, man, I'm going all in. I'm going all in. I'm betting it on you. Now, if you're doing math in this story, there's not just the Elijah and the widow, widow there's a third person, right? The son. Really, Elijah should be third in the, in the line for food. And he's asking to be first. You know, do, you, doesn't God know like the whole women and children first? You know, like who does this, right? You kind of, it's a little bit tacky. You go, man, who's, who asks for some widow's last cupcake, her and her son, but the man of God, got to keep the man of God alive, you know? Several years ago, my wife was with some of her mom friends at the park, pushing our kids in a stroller, you know, when they were young. And this guy comes jogging up all sweaty, you know, and runs up to her and he has no water. And her other mom friends like back up like 10 feet, you know, <laughs> to, like, pretend like they're talking. But he starts talking to her. He doesn't have water. And she's like, why, why don't you have water? My wife's funny. She's a runner. So she's like, what are you doing? You have no water? He's like eight miles away from home. has to go eight miles back. And she's like, you didn't bring water? And then she's like, wait a minute. You're going 16 miles. Where's your goo? And he's like, what's goo? And she's like, what kind of runner are you? You know, like the runner's goo. It gives you like the sugars and all that stuff. He has no idea. She's like, you're a clueless man. And so the great thing about moms is moms have almost everything in their purse. She doesn't have goo, but she had our kids juice boxes. She's like, I got two juice boxes. And you know, you think he would like take one of them. Takes both of them, right? <laughs> Just sitting there sipping juice boxes. My kids are looking up at this weirdo <laughs> drinking their lunch, you know, in front of them. And then he just goes bouncing off, you know, thanks. And the other moms come back over. They're like, what in the world? You know, they're talking to Becca. They're like, what kind of stranger takes somebody's kid's last two juice boxes. And my wife goes, oh, he's not a stranger. His name's Matt Brown. He's the pastor of our church at Sandals Church. He does stuff like that all the time. <laughs> We're just trying to keep the man of God alive, right? Like trying to keep him alive, just like Elijah. Um, and man, we love that story at our house because we know where the story went after that. You know, a lot of times we see small giving moments, like these juice box, mo juice box moments, but we don't value them because we don't see where the rest of the story is going. Uh, I want you to know this, write this down. This is point number two. There's no small gifts. There's no small gifts in the hands of a big God. Jesus talks about another widow when he did his ministry with the disciples. He says, there's no small gifts. There's just faithful gifts. In Luke 21, Jesus was at the temple and he was watching how people give and the rich people were dropping in their gifts to the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and she drops in her two small coins. And Jesus stops, he says, I tell you the truth. Look at that, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them for they've given a tiny part out of their surplus. There's no risk in that. There's no testing God, faith building process in that. But she, poor as she is, she's given everything she has. You know what's cool about generosity in the Bible? Do you know what the poor and the rich both have to give? Everything. You know, generosity, according to God, kind of equals the playing field. You know, being a part of the story isn't just for the wealthy. You know, you don't have to have a lot of money to get your name on a brick or a building or, you know, a bench at the zoo or whatever it is. Like, you don't have to be Stan Lee to make a cameo, you know, in the Marvel movies. Like, God says, man, I'll use anybody. It doesn't matter what status what your socioeconomic background is, whether you're poor or rich, whether you have power or influence, whether you're a majority or not, God says, man, come to me, everybody who wants to be a part in this story. 
and all can come. But he commands all too, because it's equal. He commands all. Deuteronomy 16 says this, every man shall give as he's able, as you're able, according to the blessing that God's given you. Nobody's exempt. You know, this moment for this widow looks small, but she's giving. Elijah asked her to give as she's able, this small cake. You know, most of you don't know the name uh, Alan Ladd Jr., but 50 years ago, there was a director he was getting ready to meet with in Hollywood. And, and this director had been told no by everybody. You know, Universal kind of was like, what, what's this story? You know, they said no, goes to Disney. They're like, that's just weird. Like, that, your characters are weird. Uh, they laugh at him. So he goes to Fox. And this is kind of this director's last meeting, you know, with a producer to, to try to get funding for his movie. And Alan Ladd Jr., you know, looks at this guy and is like, look, man, I don't, I don't like your characters. They're weird. I don't like your space story. I don't get it. I don't see where it's going. I don't even believe in it. Like what you're talking about, I don't even believe in it, but I believe in you. And Alan wrote a check to George Lucas for just enough money to write the script for the first Star Wars. And the rest is history. It was a small gift, but I mean, Hollywood bet against George Lucas and lost, right? <laughs> like George turned that into $10 billion. Like that's how much money he's made off those movies, $10 billion. And eventually, you know, Disney comes back around like, hey, can we, can we buy that from you? You know, I mean, it's a little late. Like you're like 50 years and $10 billion late. You know, Boba Fett is now Boba Fat, you know? So... They come, I, I can just imagine this poor person having to call George Lucas, and, but he does, he sells it. And what's funny is he doesn't just sell it for money. He took stock in, in Disney. Do you know that? He's like, dude, I'll, I'll take Mickey's bow. Man, I'm gonna take Goofy's vest. Yeah, I'll take Woody's boots. Like I'm taking, if I was George Lucas, I would have put big Mickey Mouse ears on the wall in my office like antlers and with a big banner. <laughs> just said, don't ever, ever bet against George Lucas, right? <laughs> Listen to me. When God invites you and me to invest in, in what he's doing, and we say, I don't, I don't see it. I don't like the characters. They're weird. <laughs> I don't see where it's going. I don't believe in it. You know what? You're betting. You're betting against God. We're betting against God. The only one who knows where the story's going. George, look, that moment looks small, right? Look at Zechariah 4.10. Most of us probably never read this verse. This is Zechariah, minor prophet, says this, do not despise these small beginnings. Other versions say, do not despise the day of small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see his work begin. A lot of times we see these small moments and we despise them in our heart. Do you know that's the same exact word that it uses when David looks at Goliath, or I'm sorry, when Goliath looks at David and sees how small and young he is, and it says Goliath despised David in his heart. We look at our own gifts, our own giving moments sometimes, and, and think they're too small. This widow has a decision to make. Am I gonna go all in and trust this God of Israel? And it says that she went out and did as Elijah said. She goes all in. And she and her, her and her household 
And Elijah ate for many days. And listen, God kept his promise. The jar of flour was not spent and neither did the jug of oil become empty. It might've got low, but it didn't become empty. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elisha. Can I just tell you like for our family, we have tithed, we have given, and on paper, we make no sense. <laughs> when we went to get a loan, you know, for our house, I, on paper, the guy was just so confused. Like, how are you guys alive? You know, <laughs> but we own our vehicles. We have no debt. On paper, we make no sense, but we trusted God. And listen, it grew my trust in God. It grew my faith in God. And listen, I think the real reason this widow needed to trust God for oil and trust God for flour day after day, month after month, is the test is about to get a lot harder. Three years, it, during this three years, her son gets sick and dies. And, and I think she needed that faith. She needed to see God provide for her day after day, month after month. God, you're carrying us through so that she can make it through one night losing her son. And Elijah raises him from the dead. Saving Elijah saves her and her whole family. But she had to give. Listen, we need to test God in the area of giving because like I said, life's gonna test you. And you need the anchor of your faith to be there. Listen, what, don't you see what the Bible's saying? Is that we need faith you know, more than our last two fish. You need faith more than your last two coins. And you need this kind of faith more than your last two meals. Because giving is the most tangible way for you and I to grow our faith in God because we say, God, you see the rest of the story. We don't see the rest of the story, but you do. And I'm going all in on you. See, we just live in the middle. It's, it's a better story than Lord of the Rings. It's a better story than all those other ones. We just are in the middle of it. We don't get to see the future of it. And this widow didn't get to either, right? Elijah just goes bouncing off, <laughs> you know, thanks. You know, off to call down fire on people or whatever he's gonna do. And she didn't, you know, she didn't have like CNN where she could flip on and go, hey, isn't that the guy that crashed on her couch for like three years? <laughs> Look at him, man, they're so proud. He's all calling down fire on God's enemies. <laughs> she didn't get to see that. She's just a footnote. But here's what's really cool. When Jesus preaches what I think is one of the only sermons we have, traditional sermons in a synagogue, where he unrolls the scroll and, and reads, he says, Luke 4, I tell you the truth, there were a lot of widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a great famine over the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a woman who was a widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. Can you imagine Jesus saying, hey, there's only one of you in this story. You get to be alive in the middle of this story and there's only one of you to do what needs to be done in this story. And you may not get to see the full impact of your life and your ministry until much later. Um, my, a lot of you don't know this, but my wife and I, I don't work for Sandals. I'm a teaching pastor, but we lead a completely different ministry called the Traveling Team. And we work with students and help them get involved in world missions. We've been doing that for 22 years. 
and I love it. We've traveled to 49 of the 50 states over that time, speaking to you know, campus groups all over the country. But we are the most unknown ministry like in the world. Nobody knows who we are, all right? It bugs me. It's hard to raise money. It's hard to you know, recruit staff. We're, we're completely hidden, super unknown. In fact, I, when we came here, I think I wanted Pastor Matt more than anybody. I kind of wanted him to know, like, we're, we're a big deal too, you know? Like, I got 30 staff, you know? We're rocking 30 staff in Arkansas. Like, we're kind of a big deal too in the missions world. Uh, I remember we went to a, like speak at a missions thing together at Biola and he's like, man, I talked to the missions guy at Biola and I asked him if he heard of the traveling team. I was like, what do you he say? He's like, oh, he said he never heard of you. And I was like, <laughs> I was so hurt by that. Uh, well, listen, way back t- t- 20 years ago, the traveling team published a book. We printed a book. We made a thousand copies of it. Uh, it cost a dollar each, you know. And it looked this bad. This is it. I mean, it's not, it's as unrememberable as we are, you know. And we gave out a thousand copies, you know, to campuses. And one of them, one of these books ended up in the hands of a student at the University of Georgia named David. And I didn't know this till later, but David got this book and read it. And he went on at age 27 to become the youngest pastor of a megachurch ever at 27. At 31, he wrote a book called Radical, and it was a New York Times bestseller. This was not a New York Times bestseller, okay? But his book was, it sold a million copies in two years, and it was about missions. And then at age 35, he became the president of the largest mission agency in the world, and then he visited Sandals Church to speak one time. And I was backstage with David Platt, and I was helping him with his microphone. And we're talking and he's like, do you work here for Sandals? I said, no, man, I, I work for this little ministry called the Traveling Team. You know, never heard of it. He's like, his, he lit up. He's like, the Traveling Team. He goes, the 10 modules. I got that book when I was a student at the <laughs> University of Georgia. And he's like, it changed my life. That's why I talk about missions because of that. And then he walked off, he bounced off. And I sat there and I was like, man, I waited 20 years you know, 20 years to see and hear the, the greatest example of our ministry, what we're trying to do. And, and, and God, you brought him from Washington, D.C., all the way to Riverside, California. You brought him right to me to hear that story. And there was nobody around to hear it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Pastor Matt was here five minutes ago. Are you kidding me? David, you're killing me. So I got him to write an endorsement. All right, later, we got him to write an endorsement. You know, look, I, I would have never known back in 2002 that we were betting on a David Platt, but I knew we were betting on God. And I knew we were betting on someone who knew where the story was going. And I'm so glad we bet on God. Listen, I'm okay being a footnote in the David Platt story or the Sandals story because that means I get to be a part of God's story. Number three, I want you to write this down. When I give, it allows me to be a part of God's miracle story. You get to be a footnote in the greatest story ever written. You get to light the match that lights the fire, that lights the world. You with me? Um. I remember when we first came to Sandals, it was at Hunter Park, and they had just laid the carpet in, in the south, you know, little sanctuary there. 
And a lot of you may not know this, but underneath the carpet, before they laid down the carpet, the people who serve, people came to write their names and prayers for this church underneath that carpet. Uh, Bible verses, you know, families came. It was amazing. And we missed it. Like I heard about it later and I was like, Rebecca, man, we missed that. And when they did it again in the other auditorium, I'm like, we're, man, we're going to be there. Hundreds of people showed up. There was a line of people to get in and families came in. And I got to watch like his families wept and, and said, thank you. You know, and got to write out what God had done in their life. They got to write prayers, you know, for the future of this church verses. Someone came and grabbed me from, from our family from the back and brought us to where the stage is. And they let me write underneath the stage. And I wrote, actually wrote a verse that's really meaningful to me when I get nervous or when I'm feeling like I need confidence. I have a verse that's underneath that platform just for me. But then they covered it, you know, covered it with carpet. You know, when you give, when you give, you, especially as sandals, you get to be a part of what God is doing in those stories. You get to be that foundation of what God is doing, the unseen, hidden work that God is doing. And I think what Pastor Matt did is so wise because he's saying, man, the story of Sandals Church has always been bigger than one person. It's all those people. It's all those prayers. It's all those people who serve. But here's the image that really got me is I realized one day they're going to roll that carpet back. Someday, some future generation is going to peel back that carpet. And it's going to tell a story. Do you know Jesus said that a time is coming when everything covered up will be revealed. God says, I will peel back the heavens like a scroll. And what you've done, it'll be seen. It'll be revealed. And you're going to say, man, I'm so glad that I gave. I'm so glad that I went all in and bet on you, God. And I got to be a part of what you're doing for all eternity. You know, I make fun of Disney, but you know what Disney did that's right? They said, it's, well, at least it's not too late. It's not too late. Some of you, maybe you've invested sideways in all the wrong other things, and God's inviting you to invest up, to give up, and be a part of what he's doing in his eternal story. Can we pray that together? Let's pray. God, you don't need our giving. And you don't really even need us. You are eternal. You are perfect. But for this short time on planet Earth, you are writing a story and it's not over. And God, we get to be alive in the middle of your story. We woke up today alive in the middle of your story. And you invite everyone who will come to you to play a part, no matter what our background, no matter what mistakes we have made, our family of origin, our resources, powerful or weak. God, um, we are equally invited. You just ask us to be faithful. God, there's no small gifts. There's no small people. Um, in fact, there's only one of me in this story. And God, I pray today we would leave with this image that my life could and my giving moments could light the match that lights the fire, that lights the world for Jesus. And God, when we see the greatness of your story, allow us to see the great privilege it is to be generous 
and give. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.